Thank you, Brother James. Thank you so much, all of you, for being part of worship. Thank you, Brother Paul, for leading us in prayer. Appreciate all those who may not be able to be here this evening, but have the opportunity to listen in. Appreciate that very much. I'd like to get into your heart just a little bit this evening. I know I'm getting there because I know all of you read the Bible and you have a great appreciation for the Lord's church. And so I know that residing in your heart, as resides in my heart, is, is a frustration with all the religious bodies, religious groups, the religious organizations that not only surround us, but saturate our area, saturate the state, the country. And it's, it's a matter of frustration. And I want us to discuss that a little bit uh, this evening. I'm going to do three things uh, with you. I want us to see um, how that this approach to the Lord Jesus is a failure to believe that all of the various religious bodies um, is, um, is the proper approach is really a, a failure before God. And then I want us to see an example of someone who came out of the denominational world and then um, notice uh, what he has to say about um, his experience. Okay, so we know that Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, says there is one body and one spirit. Even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, reading from verse 10 to get our minds going in the, the right direction here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so let's think about how that the various religious bodies and the support of the various religious bodies that saturate our land. See how that's a failure. It's a failure, first of all, to see the plan of God in the scriptures. It's a failure because it is so plainly there. It's so plainly there. We are told in Colossians 2 and 14 that, that the old law has been nailed to the cross. And that ought to be able to narrow our discussion as far as what God uh, expects of each of us. We can narrow that down all the way down to the New Testament. And so it's just a failure to see the plan of God. Uh, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to Peter, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Peter had just said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven, he's revealed this to you, Peter. And 
Jesus went on to say that I say unto you, Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall never prevail against it, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom. And so any seeking, searching person would want to find those keys. We want to find where Peter is involved uh, with uh, salvation in the church. And Jesus is basically telling us there, uh, screaming at us really, to look for Peter on the day of Pentecost and, and see the, not only the beginning of the kingdom, the establishment of the church, but also the beginning of the gospel and the plan of salvation for all humankind. And so it's a failure to see the big picture. It's a failure to see the plan of God in Scripture. It's secondly, it's also a failure to handle Scripture with common sense. It's a failure to handle Scripture with common sense. I have said to, to people, uh, hopefully not in a combative way, but, you know, if you, have to, if you have to skip over verses, especially verses in the New Testament, in order to establish what you believe, then something's not right. But yet, when, when I, I do some reading and commentaries, commentaries from, from people of all beliefs, and, and some of what they have to say about Scripture is right on target, but it's interesting when you come right down to the the verses dealing with the plan of salvation, it's, most of them will just skip right over it. Just, just will comment on everything except for those uh, verses. If, if you have to skip over a verse uh, to establish what you believe, then uh, surely you know something's not right. Every time that uh, salvation and baptism are mentioned in the same context uh, in Scripture, baptism always precedes Salvation as a condition of salvation. It's, it's without fail. It's without fail. And so if God, uh, if God had meant to make baptism a condition for salvation under the new covenant, what else would he have to say? What else would he have to say? Mark 16, 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Acts 2, 38, Repent ye and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Uh, the light figure wherein to even baptism does also now save us, 1 Peter 3.21. Acts 22.16, Why tarriest thou, arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Every time baptism and salvation are mentioned in the same paragraph, in the same area, in the same context, baptism always is a condition for salvation uh, without fail. And so if God meant to make water, water baptism uh, as part of being uh, saved from your sins, what else would he have to say? What else would he have to say? So it's a failure to just handle Scripture with common sense. It's also a failure to answer the prayer of Jesus. Now what prayer am I talking about? Well, of course, the prayer in John chapter 17, 20 and 21 where Jesus says, I don't just pray for these. He'd been praying for his apostles. Okay. The importance of the work of the apostles cannot be overstated. Jesus had been praying entirely for, for these men that he had chosen to be his apostles. He knew that when he left, that their work and their teaching would, would be uh, so essential uh, for the church. And it was. Acts 2.42 
says uh, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So Jesus had been praying for the apostles, but he, he changes courses a little bit. He changes gears a little bit there in John 17, 20 and 21. He says, neither do I pray for these alone, but also for all of them. Now he gets to us. All of them that shall believe through their word, through the apostles' word, that they all may be one, Father, as you and I are one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, that they all may be one in us. Well, with that kind of prayer, uh, we ought to seek to answer that prayer. That's, that's Jesus in his prayer talking to us to seek oneness in him. Oneness in him. How else can we do that except to, to follow him? Jesus says in John eight thirty one and 32, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and truth shall make you free what else are we going to do Uh, jesus uh, passed the word on to the apostles according to john 17 verse 8 he said to his father uh, the words that you have given unto me i have given uh, unto them and so how else are we going to seek oneness in the lord except by following his word so these various religious bodies is a it, it, it comprises a failure to answer the prayer of Jesus. The early church did. We read in Acts 4, uh, chapter 32, or verse 32, Acts 4, 32, uh, that the early church was together. They were united in, in soul and spirit. Okay. Uh, they were united in, in mind and spirit. Okay. Uh, and so uh, they answered the prayer of Jesus But then, another way that this is a failure and I'm going to try to explain it in a way that's in my mind. Sometimes it don't always come out properly. But it's a failure to combat confusion. We ought to be interested in in presenting uh, the gospel in its purity, and when we do, uh, it should not be confusing. Should not be confusing. We read in First Corinthians fourteen thirty-three that God is not the author of confusion. Okay. And for someone to say, "Well, all of these different teachings under the banner of Jesus Christ, for all of them to be reported as being okay with the Lord," uh, that is quite confusing to the world quite confusing. Uh, And so it ought not to be. God is the perfect God. Uh, He is the powerful God. Uh, He is the compassionate God. Uh, When we say that confusion uh, that is um, dominating the religious world, if we say that's okay, we're basically saying God did not have the ability to make himself known to the world. And we know that he did. And he does, and that he did. But then, I want to introduce this to you as well before we move on to our next section. God wants us to pass on the promise of salvation. And when we don't, it's a failure. It's a failure. And what has happened with these various religious bodies is a failure to pass on the promise. God promises to provide salvation to us through His Son. 
through his son. But uh, when we don't make it plain, when we do not adhere to the plain teaching New Testament, then it's a, it's a failure. I'm reminded of Jeremiah chapter 2, 13, a very important verse in, in this discussion. Jeremiah 2, 32. God through Jeremiah said, My people have committed two evils. I like it when God sums things up. It, causes, it saves us so much time and trouble. He says, my, my people have committed two evils. First of all, he says, they have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters. Now, we could spend the entire night, of course, just on that phrase, God as the fountain, the source of all blessings, especially the source of all spiritual blessings. Okay, we're not going to do that. But they have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters. And then secondly, they have they have hewn them out. They have dug them out cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Let's quickly think about what a cistern is. In those days, between the month of April through October, it's very dry. Very dry in the Mideast. Very dry. And so it was necessary that in the rainy season you find a way to have some fresh water available. And so what they would do, they would dig out holes in the ground and they would put um, stone, mortared stone, uh, in those holes. And if it's built properly, then it will hold water and keep it cool and fresh for a very long time. Um, But if a stone um, becomes broken, if, if if a cistern becomes broken, then, of course, the water is going to leak out and it is worthless. It's no good. And look what God is saying. He's saying, you have forsaken me, the source of all blessings, and you've gone your own way, and you've hewed yourselves, yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, because mankind, all of us on earth, we're made in the image of God, we're going to be religious if we forsake the true God, we're going to begin to create, create new religions that promise salvation, but uh, fail in their promise. Okay. And this is what was happening in Jeremiah's day. They were going after false gods and uh, saying to people that these false gods uh, can be your conscience. These false gods can, can soothe your way. They can guide you. They can, they can be our religion. But, of course, uh, God was going to bring punishment upon his people and show them that these false gods were absolutely uh, worthless. But here's what they were doing. They were creating this system of belief that was going to lead people down a road that uh, was, uh, would be in vain for them. Okay. So picture it this way. Suppose you were traveling, and there, out away from someone's dwelling, is a cistern. You can tell it's been been dug. And you go up to it, and you're expecting, there's the promise of fresh water, but you look in there, and it's just all cracked and broken. The water is just not there, just at the very bottom, just some mud. It was a promise of fresh water, but in the end, it it was in vain. So God is describing that any... Any worship, any religion that is away from his ways 
is something that is a promise, but it's a failed promise. In Romans 10, verses 2 and 3, Paul was speaking of his his brethren in the flesh, his Jewish brethren in the flesh. He says, I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, have gone out to establish their own righteousness. That's exactly, almost exactly parallel to Jeremiah 2.13. Paul was, was heartbroken about this. That his people would not, his own brothers, his own family, his own cousins, his own community was not able to see what the true God had in mind for them through Jesus Christ. Instead of following the Lord, they were creating their own sort of righteousness that was going to lead them down a very dark path. And so it's a failure. Now I'd like to share with you for our next part of our lesson a, a, a young man who has a family and at least two children. And in recent years he was able to come out of false religions and, um, and uh, be baptized into Christ. And I have um, read and listened to his uh, account, and so I want to share with you some of the major features of what he said. Okay. It started with his little girl, uh, Briella. Briella. Briella somehow or another got scoliosis. And... It, um, of course, it devastated them. It kept them extra busy, lots of worry, lots of concern, lots of um, visits to various doctors in major cities. You, you, know, you know how that would go. But uh, he says that uh, she, little Briella, handled the condition with so much courage and faith and hope that it really made both mom and dad stop and consider their own character and their own heart. Last Sunday evening, we we spoke of Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and infants, God has perfected praise. Sometimes children have a way of waking us up. And they're claiming in their story that that's what their daughter did for them. Part of the reason that they began to look more closely at their belief. Okay. Whatever it takes, we ought to be always examining ourselves to see whether we're in the faith according to 2 Corinthians uh, 13 and, and verse 5. And then they have a son. His name is Brady. And they're involved, at one time they were involved in, in going to religious groups not authorized by the New Testament. And they came home from their church one day, and, and Brady just asked his daddy, he said, um, Daddy, what is salvation anyway? I've been hearing about that. What is salvation? And uh, Dad said, in answering that, he just hem-hauled around about it. Uh, he went through a bunch of, um, 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 and then he just finally said, well, son, you know it has to do with Jesus, it has to do with the cross, it has to do with your heart, but he really could not answer that. And then much later, as he's doing some interviews, he said, I, I just have to admit, I was absolutely ashamed that I could not 
teach my son the most important things in life. I was ashamed. And he could recall verses now that he could not do then, but he knew what his heart was doing to him. He was ashamed. We can read now, Matthew 16, 26, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And parents can use that verse to say, Okay, what's it going to profit me if I teach my children everything about life except for the most important things, the things dealing with, with the soul? In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul says, we, we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporary, temporal, but the things which are not seen, they are eternal. And this is what he could not speak to his son about. He had no idea. He said that made a huge impression upon him. Again, the question of a child. The question, should, perhaps you've been there. Perhaps... That's what caused one of us to wake up because uh, we, had, um, we had children. We had children. And so both Briella in the family and Brady caused mom and dad to stop and consider uh, their own ways. And then there's Ernie. In the story, there's Ernie. Ernie is a coworker. Ernie is uh, persistent. Ernie is uh, aggravating. Aggravating. Ernie continued to give uh, this man uh, booklets and tracts uh, from church just about every time. And uh, the young man would take these and read them, and uh, he would get mad because these booklets and tracts, they were concerning the salvation in Christ, they were concerning the gospel plan, they were concerning the nature of the, uh, the true church. He would read them, but then he would get mad about it because it was running contrary to everything that he had held to. It was running contrary to what he had been told. It was contrary to his church. And he liked his church. That's what this young man says in his interview. He liked the church. He liked the atmosphere at church. He played the drums at his church. He he loved the presentations at church. He loved his pastor. He he loved his friends. He loved uh, the community that was there. He, he, he loved his, his children having friends there. They had great um, presentations that, that, that had, you know, sound, lights, and even smoke and fog uh, to make it more meaningful. And so when he would read what Ernie would share with him at work, uh, it made him mad. It made him irritated. And he, he would try to uh, avoid Ernie. He could not avoid Ernie. There's, Ernie was one of these guys you cannot avoid. And, but he tried to avoid Ernie because he knew Ernie was going to have another booklet for him uh, to consider. But it's interesting that even though he was mad at Ernie for giving it to him, he'd always read it. He'd always be re- reading it. But he would get mad. You know, Acts 17, when Paul concluded his sermon there in Athens, Acts 17, uh, 32, the reaction there is interesting. Now, some people believed. A few people did believe. And obey. But some mocked what Paul was saying. They were irritated at him. And then others would say, well, we'll hear you again later. We'll, talk, we'll think about this later. Okay, that's a pretty common reaction. But it's actually good when the Bible makes us mad. It's good because it's challenging us. It's 
challenging us. And so often say we say, well, the road to freedom is first to get mad, then secondly to get sad, and then thirdly you end up being glad. But first it makes you mad. But then you realize that's the truth, and it makes you sad. But then once you submit to the truth, then you can, as the, as the eunuch we read about in Acts 8, 39, he went on his way rejoicing. He can make you glad. And that's what eventually happened to this young man. But at first, he was irritated at Ernie. He was irritated. But what about old Ernie? Look at God using Ernie. And then the next part of the story also involves Ernie because Ernie wasn't just going to hand out tracts to him. He had a thing in mind. At his church, they had a special day coming up. So Ernie invited him to their special day. And why did Ernie do that? Well, what if Ernie had said, look, um, John, you just need to stop going to church there and come to church here. In all likelihood, that was not going to work. But could John spare one night? Because Ernie had obviously showed a great deal of concern for John. John could. So John and his wife and family did go to Ernie's church to hear a guest speaker one night. One night. Here's what struck John about this. Um, Every time the speaker spoke, he backed backed up what he said with Scripture. And then he noticed that he would use Scripture to explain Scripture. And then he noticed that he would use Scripture to tie things together that, that he had been pondering all of his life. And he began to think about that and compare that to what he usually hears on Sunday. And there was no comparison. Because usually there was a verse or two and there was a humorous story uh, shared and then there was an invitation to receive Jesus in your heart and then there was a presentation of a concert and that was about it. That was about it. So He compared what he heard and then finally after a great deal of examination and then further study with Ernie, he and his wife both were baptized into Christ. Now, the next part is to think about what John says. He, he concluded his interview with some takeaways. Some takeaways, some things that really helped change their way, helped, helped bring them to the truth. The first thing he talked about was baptism. He said, it is constant in, in, uh, in religious bodies all around us to talk about baptism being an outward sign of inward repentance. Of baptism being an outward sign of an inner change. And as he continued to listen and to read the pamphlets and to listen to, to different things Ernie uh, gave him, he could see that none of those passages... Uh, talked about that at all. None of the salvation passages talked about baptism being an outward sign of an inward change. None of them did. Even the popular were Romans 6, 3, and 4 that's often used to, to talk about that. Romans 6 doesn't teach that. You know that. Romans 6 and, and verse 3, Paul says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. See, baptism puts you in contact with the death of Jesus. And so John just never realized that. Baptism into the death. Everybody knows 
the, in the importance of the death of Jesus. And then verse 4 goes on to say, Therefore we are buried with him in baptism, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's nothing there about baptism being an outward sign of an inward change. It's just talking about the process of baptism bringing you to a new life. And of course that fits in parallel. It, it, it um, very similar to the emphasis of these other passages about baptism and salvation. And so one thing that stood out to him was the constant incorrect teaching about baptism. Another thing that he took away from his experience was um, the constant incorrect teaching about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that is something that he had never realized that he had been missing. He had heard John 3.16, but he never realized the chapter and the context of it. Uh, he, he began to realize in, in his reading and his learning that Jesus uh, had um, been in that chapter and Nicodemus had come to Jesus and they had talked about the new birth. Okay. So obviously the teaching of new birth involved the teaching of the spirit through the word of God and also involved water. Whoever is born of water and the spirit, then that person gets to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he, he reasoned in his mind that, that John 3.16 cannot go against that. And then as he continued to read in John 3, he gets down to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. And so he began to go back in Numbers 21 and read the, the background of that and see that the people were saved uh, from their complaining and God's uh, punishment by looking upon the serpent on the on the, uh, on the pole. And so by their looking, that's parallel to obedience in the New Testament. What, what really um, brought him around was to realize that, yes, Jesus is promising uh, eternal life to those that believe, but belief has a deeper meaning than simply acknowledging something good about God. And the parallel passage that really helped him is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Concerning Jesus, uh, Hebrews 5, 8 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He became the author, we notice this. Okay. This is probably written in your Bible, but if it's not, be sure it's there. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. And that ties both belief and faith together as as receiving the promise of eternal life, but it also helps one to stop and consider, well, what is faith? What is faith? And faith is a belief in God, but it's backed up with a, with a um, desire and anxiousness to listen to God and do uh, what he says. And then another takeaway uh, that John has here is um, he said that in his religious experience, he was never, uh, no one ever shared with him <clears throat> all the passages of the New Testament having to do with salvation. Only two or three. And of course, when he went to the Lord's church, the encouragement was to, to look at it yourself and to notice all the passages and put them all together and then walk away with the conclusion and the truth of the matter. Such passages as Psalm 119 and verse 160, 
was shared uh, with John when he went uh, to the Lord's church. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of thy word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. You've got to put it all together. Or as Paul says in Acts 20, 26, and 27, I am free from the blood of all men, because I declared unto you the whole counsel of God. Every bit of it. And one of John's takeaways was that uh, one of the things that's dividing people so much is not so much what they teach, is the lack of teaching. It's not sharing all that is there, but only a select uh, portion of what is there. And then also, of course, he, uh, his takeaway was that that uh, with the Lord's church, everyone is encouraged to read it for themselves. Read it for themselves. And the background he came out of, uh, it was basically, listen to this and uh, you'll be okay. But of course, we want to be like the Bereans of Acts 17, 11, and 12. Examine the scriptures daily and then receive them with a readiness of mind, but search the scriptures daily uh, so that we can see what is and what is not. Not everything that we hear is true, but if it's in the scripture, of course, it, it's going to be true. I was reading a, a little article by Franklin Kemp uh, the other day. Some of you older guys are going to recognize Franklin Kemp. He was a Alabama gospel preacher a couple generations ago, but uh, I ran into an article by him, and the name of the article was "Every Man's Book." He's talking about the Bible. And the Bible is written for every man, not a select few, not for one, not for two. There's no one who's out here who's been specialized by God or selected by God to have more ability with the Bible than anyone else. It's every man's book. It's so true. It's so true. And so John concluded his interview by saying your approach is so important your approach to the Lord is so important you can't get carried away with atmosphere or fun or, or um, loud music or a special scene or trips or campaigns you've got to get back and realize this is the most important question it's the most important decision that you ever faced, you have a responsibility with your family to get it right. If you get this wrong, nothing else matters. And so he concluded that that approach uh, to Scripture is so very important. And so what I wanted to do with you is to get to this interview, but first think about how denominationalism, all all this saturation of religious bodies, is really a failure before God. And then to share this story of John. John's name is John Persley. And I believe he now lives close to Memphis, Tennessee. And I want you to know this because I'm going to show you, tell you where I uh, run into John. If you go to gbntv.org, gbntv.org, uh, his conversion story appears pretty fast on that website. And they interview him as to how he came out of uh, a religious background that he was involved in. He can tell a lot better than I can, but at least see these are some of the features and takeaways uh, that I, I have for it. But I know this. I know because we're together 
on the doctrine of Christ. I know that it frustrates us to see so many confused. And yet, like Ernie, like Ernie, we must not stop. We must become a little irritating to people in a nice kind of way. Okay. But we must be persistent. We're persistent because we're passionate. We're passionate because we know this is the truth and this is what people need. And so we want to think about this and and grow in our appreciation for what the Lord has brought us, salvation in Christ and His own body, His church, and the great hope of eternal salvation with Him. And if you have need uh, this evening, any spiritual need uh, that we can possibly uh, sit down and study about, uh, pray about, if there is something that is tugging uh, at your heart, whatever it is, whatever it is, we have at least this. We have the mind of God right here in our hands. We've got, we got the mind. This is the whole counsel of God. And so we have the best source available to tackle any question. And it might take us two or three weeks. It might take us two or three months. I don't know how long it took John and his wife to finally come to the truth and obey it. Not sure, but it's a process. If we can help get that process started, whatever your need may be, uh, come right now as we stand, Brother James, as we stand together.